0: Step inside my living room Share a little talk Our roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I want to know where you've been and what you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height
1: Welcome back to Hat Radio, my name is Avram Rosenzweig and this is episode 55, big crowd there, applause, yes. I am delighted to be here and I, I am here with my very dear friend Dr. Gordon Arbus, how are you Gord? Very well, thank you. Great, great, thank, it, you. thank you so much for coming up here, I know it took you about an hour to get here from downtown. <laughs> thank you for having me, it's, yeah, it's worth yeah. the trip.
2: Traveling's harder in Toronto now, isn't it? It is, it's a busy city,
1: a Right. traffic.
2: right, when we were growing up it wasn't this crazy. Well, I grew up in Montreal, which you know had different craziness about it—potholes, but uh, and the FL- traffic FLQ. here. Yeah, the, traf- <laughs> the traffic here is is pretty intense, but that's a, you know what makes a great city.
1: I guess so. We're becoming more me- more and more metropolitan.
2: Yeah. Um, I am very excited to have Gord.
1: Firstly, because we're old buddies, we're old friends. We did, we did a lot of work together at Via Hafta, yes. Right. You went to Guyana and you went to Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. Right. So you you've made your rounds around the world. Absolutely. We'll talk about that. And Gord is also the staff physician uh, in the Department of Family and Community Medicine and director of the HIV program at St. Mike's. So you're you're a pretty auspicious fellow. (laughs) I think you are. I've been called worse. Yeah, no, I know. I have a few names to call you throughout the show. But we'll start with those. Like, for we who are lay people in terms of medicine, in the context of medicine, you know that there is a special place that doctors hold in our community. Would that be correct? Uh, I would
2: say that's that's the case. But I think it's changed a little bit. How so? Well, I think in the 50s, 60s, you know, doctors, they could do no wrong and you wouldn't question, you know, what they were saying. But now I think with the internet and with people becoming more educated, you know, I think people question us, which is a good thing for the most part, Mm -hmm. as long as they get their information from good sources. But yeah, we're not sort of held on a pedestal as much as maybe a generation ago. Was it hard to get knocked off that pedestal? I think it's a good thing overall, I, I wouldn't really want to be, you know, uh, sort of looked up upon, uh, you know, on my pedestal, I, I want people to have a dialogue with me, I want them to question it. So so the
1: re- reason I asked that is because my father was from the old time rabbis, and they were way up there on yeah. the bima, you know, on that pedestal, and slowly, generationally, I think they got knocked off a little bit too, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. And I'm not sure that it was easy for everybody. Yeah, I
2: think it depends on the person. Some people may have trouble with that change, um, and others might be like, "This is cool, you know?" Mm-hmm. And, and, and I feel like it's the right thing to, to have a dialogue and be questioned uh, in terms of why I'm making a recommendation. I want people to be informed, and I want that to be more of a conversation rather than me, you know, saying "This is the way it is. And do people ask you, do old folks ask you questions? Uh, older people, you're right, I, I think are generally more like, well, yes, doc, um, you know, and even certain cultures, you know, so you have people from different countries where, uh, or older generations from those countries where they don't question, they just say, whatever you say, doc, you know, and they don't want to have that dialogue. Would you ever say to them, you should probably ask me a few questions? Yeah, and I do try and do that. But there are certain people who say, no, I don't know what to ask. You're, you're the one who knows, you know, knows everything. Is that a greater responsibility to you, or is that just the way it rolls? Well, I think it's just the way it rolls, but I still try and have that conversation to say, you know, it's important for you to ask questions like, do you have any fears? Do you have any doubts? You know, or, do you have concerns about what I'm saying? And try and get that conversation going. Right, yeah. right. How much do you know as a doctor? And I don't mean you personally, I mean doctors in general. I think it's harder and harder to know as much as we should because, uh, you know, technology changes and advancements happen. And I think it's really challenging to keep up with the latest data and the latest yeah. evidence. And that's what people demand, right? That you know the latest developments, the latest you know, inventions, um, latest medications. And there's so much, especially as a family doctor, that we have to know because you're supposed to know a little bit about everything. And that's, that's a big challenge of, of family medicine. Do you read journals? I do. Regularly? Uh, Probably not as regularly as I should, but I try, you know, and a lot of it now is available as an email, um, you know, just like a summary of, of the latest things that are important as opposed to going to the actual journal. Um, you know, because it's hard to find time to, to read everything.
1: Well, would you read The Lancet? Like, are there particular medical
2: journals yeah, that I you think, choose? Yeah, I think like JAMA, Lancet, uh, British Medical Journal. You know, those are kind of the biggies in the HIV field, which I do a lot of. You know, there's certain HIV journals uh, that I might refer to or, or look at specific articles. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And, and when you're in the middle of a procedure or you're dealing with a particular patient's it does does a concept or does an article or, or a study that you read does it pop into your head? Is that the way it works? Or do you got to go to the computer and do your data, you know, Yeah, review? I mean,
2: some things are off the top of my head, you know, not not as many as there probably should be. Now that you're older. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the, luckily, you, you kind of know where to go. So I have certain, you know, go to websites or, or journals where I can get that information relatively quickly. Yeah. Either with the patient there or I'll say, you know, let me get back to you on that. And, you know, sometimes I'll wait till the next time they come in and I say, you know, I, I've done my, my homework, so to speak.
1: Are you ever in a situation where you've read about something which is groundbreaking, a study that just occurred, which showed success, peer reviewed, and you're able to implement it? Like you say to yourself, oh, my God, I just read about this last week. I think I can do something for this fellow. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Like,
1: so- like, can you give me an example?
2: Well, uh, diabetes, for example, is one of the most common chronic conditions, right? And as people get older, it's becoming much more common, uh, much more prevalent. And uh, there's this notion now that, you know, it's not only just important to control blood sugar, but um, you want to reduce someone's cardiac risk, for example. You know, you want to reduce the risk of them having a heart attack or stroke. So there's certain medications that are used for diabetes, for example, now that not only control blood sugar, and reduce the sugar, but also reduce the chance of having a heart attack or stroke. So that's big, right? And that's uh, certain pivotal studies came out in the last few years. And so that's sort of some groundbreaking stuff that happens. In in terms of studies
1: themselves, I I remember reading that there was a study done, I believe it was at Harvard. Nobody should quote me on this. (laughs) But it was a study that essentially said there was a study done in Harvard on ABC, in one area of the university and then there was another study done on the same abc the conclusions were completely different yeah right yet they were both published yes so the the question that comes out of that is because something is valid on february the 11th 2020 how do we know or how much do we rely
2: on 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 the fact that it it'll be good in a year or two or, or five years from now But that's so common, right? You look at most studies, um, and, and so you'll do one study, it'll show a certain result, and then another study will either refute that and have completely different results, or it'll confirm the results of the first study. So that's what we see, and you hear that on the news all the time, right? In terms of, you know, coffee, for example. Is coffee good for your heart? not good for your heart. So sometimes you'll hear studies about, you know, there's a benefit to coffee reducing certain cancers, coffee reducing heart disease, and then you have other studies that show, you know, coffee uh, maybe increases heart disease. So it really depends on, you know, who's doing the study, how well is the study done, who's in the control group, how many subjects or participants were in the study. There's so many variables that go into good research that you have to really look, dig down deep to look at what exactly is happening in that so, study. So
1: you know how to read a report. It's
2: like reading, going to the racetracks and knowing how to read the program. <laughs> yeah, I may not make as much money uh, as going <laughs> to the horse races. But yeah, you're right. I, I think that you have to know how to, uh, and, and I don't think that's taught very well in medical school, um, so a lot of people that I work with are epidemiologists, for example, uh, or science and researchers. Uh, they're much more capable of that. I've gotten better over the years just because yeah. I'm getting involved in some research, but it's very challenging to, to find the time to do it properly.
1: What, what is a proper review or approach to a study, two or three things that are important?
2: Well, I think knowing how the study was designed, you know, knowing what the question is what is the research question and then what are the findings and and so do the findings make sense Um, what's the conclusion how um, are you able to relate the study findings to to general um, you know to general population to, to, to the field that you're looking to study. So might something jump out at you in a study
1: which you will show to a colleague and say Dave, this just just doesn't jive. This doesn't make sense.
2: Yeah, yeah that could, that can happen. Yeah, and sometimes a study that doesn't make sense really doesn't make sense, and it wasn't done properly. It wasn't it, in in a major, well-respected, peer-reviewed yeah. journal. Yeah, I mean, there's been examples of that, um, and and that's what happened with you know, for example, uh, vaccines. You know, were thought to cause autism, and it was basically one scientist who fabricated studies or, or misled people in the studies to, to say that, you know, getting the mumps or measles or rubella vaccine, for example, um, was associated with an inc- increased risk of autism. And it was found to be completely false, right? And the guy, um, you know, he really should be in jail. So that's just, I mean, that's an egregious example. But there are certain studies where the result doesn't make sense, and then someone else replicates the study and they find that, yeah, you know, they found the opposite result. Um so that's that's research for you, you know. You have to understand what you're reading and understand what the question is and, and make sure you understand how the study was designed. I guess
1: one possibility as to why that person did that is within your industry there's a concept
2: of what is it, publish or die? What is it? Yeah, publish or perish. Or perish, yeah. 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 So that's is that you know, is that an overriding piece? I think that makes sense when you're in an academic uh, institution like University of Toronto. If you're an actual researcher, yeah, I mean you don't get funded if you don't have publications, right? You don't get the grants that yeah. you need to to do the studies if yeah. you don't, uh, you know, you don't have an extensive research CV. So I have certain colleagues that are, you know, exclusively researchers. They feel that every day. Uh, I'm more of a clinician, but I do some research, so it's not as important for me. But I do feel that too, right? You won't get. Certain grants, if you don't have a, enough experience in your, uh, have you been published? I have, as part of a group. You know, I, I'm yeah. sort of on the periphery for the most part, but I've I've been involved with numerous studies. What what was one of the major ones? The ones you liked. Um, I'm interested in the complications of HIV infections, sort of the comorbid conditions. So, you know, as people get older with HIV, that's my interest area. And so we find that people living with HIV as they get older develop more complications than the general population. So more osteoporosis, more heart disease, more diabetes, more cancers. And so some of the research I've been involved with is looking at those questions. Why is that happening?
1: You said in an article that someone who is HIV positive comes into your office today and they'll come in, they're 60 years old and there was a good possibility they would, they were not supposed to live until this day, but they often very,
2: they look 10 years older, right? Yeah. So a lot of the patients I see have been living with HIV for, you know, 30 years, 30 plus years. Yeah. And so, I mean, on the one hand, they're very fortunate because they're alive. A lot of their friends and, and, you know, loved ones uh, died in the 80s and 90s. They're they're very much alive, but they're living with the, a lot of various um, complications, you know, related to their HIV, like heart disease, like cancers, like mental health issues. So, yes, they're alive and they're doing well. They're alive, but they're experiencing a lot of different complications and, and other conditions. So, they're on numerous medications and... Um, And, you know, sometimes I work with medical students, and they'll say, wow, that that 50-year-old man looks like he's sort of in his 60s. Um, You know, so there's this phenomenon of some people, um, especially the people who have been living with HIV for a long time, actually are suffering sort of a lot of diseases of of older people, and they look older. And a lot of these people smoke, right, and uh, so they have other risk factors, for for some of these conditions
1: you you have a very high empathy uh, level i know that because we've worked together as i said at the top of the show we've gone to guyana we've gone to zimbabwe i myself didn't go because i'm agoraphobic <laughs> but i sent you <laughs> and i know that you're a very very sensitive lovely soul thank you <laughs> so you go into your office every day and you're certainly not selling percolators Right. You're dealing with human being. You're dealing beings. You're dealing with humankind. And you're doing this five days a week, six days a week, Mondays and Wednesdays. You're working late. You take homework. How does this affect your soul? How do you deal with the idea of I know I'm going into the office tomorrow and I know I have back to back appointments, you know, all day long. I'm scheduled, and I know I'm going to be meeting up with people who have such tsuris, right? who have such problems.
2: Yeah, I think that's what motivates me is, you know, because there are times I complain and I sweat the small stuff, right? I, and, you know, you have to call people back, and there's lots of fr- prescription renewals and faxes and letters and forms. To Admin develop. stuff. Admin stuff, which is not my favorite stuff. But no. I <laughs> often say when I'm feeling sorry, I kind of say to myself, wait a minute, look who I'm trying to help here. Look what they're going through. Look what they're experiencing. You know, a lot of people I see don't have a place to live. You know, they're, they're wondering where they're going to stay each night. Um, a lot of people are living in chronic pain. Uh, isolation, social isolation is probably one of the biggest issues that, you know, we yeah. see. Yeah. And so, you know, I get to go home to a family, to a warm house, to, you know, a, a lovely wife, partner, uh, three healthy children. And so, you know, a lot of the people I see don't have that, right? So when I start feeling badly for myself, I, I often come back to that. Which reminds me, hey, wait a minute. These people, you know, a lot of the people I see and I've known for, you know, 25 years uh, are struggling. And they struggle, you know, a lot. Um, Some have overcome their struggles and are doing really well. But a lot of people are not doing well. So I have to keep reminding myself. Sometimes before I tuck myself in at night
1: and it's a freezing cold night, I think about those individuals out there whom i know because of my work with via hafta you know and gordy i quickly turn it off because unless i'm about to go out there and do something directly it's very hard it's very very hard to come to grips with the idea that we you and i are so incredibly blessed yes and these people are not
2: yeah how do you deal with that well on the other hand you know, I, I do work with people who, who have faced many hardships. And I also have seen some amazing success stories, right? Where, you know, some, like I have a, a woman in my practice who who's lived, you know, in and out of shelters, uh, has faced, you know, major issues with mental health and addiction. And every year without fail at Christmas, she brings me a bottle of wine does she yeah and I said no 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 no. I, I want please that's very kind of you but you know I would rather that you spend that money on yourself yes and, and she has children as well she goes nope this is what I want to do yeah and uh, she you know was able to go back to school because uh, she never finished high school and uh, she's looking for work now right so so you I don't want to make a, a sweeping generalization that you know all the people I see who face hardships it's, it's you know chronically bad and they're always going to be in that situation because there are people who do o- overcome adversity and who make these small steps towards you know being happier and, and more successful. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think you have to remember those positive changes that happen because otherwise, you're right. I think it becomes so hopeless that you're not motivated and you, you get really despondent about all these things.
1: Do, do you have a an existential take?
2: On life do you understand what's going on here well I think uh, in a very broad sense well I wonder why there's such a a variation right we're all humans right yeah yeah. we all were born we all had you know mothers and fathers Um, we've had you know some have had siblings some have had children you know and and so why is it that you know some people have you know don't face a lot of adversity and others have to face you know, poverty or, or living on the street or faced with addiction, mental health. So I often wonder why is it that that you know there's such there's such a, a variation or a disparity, or, right? Yeah, such a disparity. Yeah, and me too. And, um, but I'm off, I, I'm I feel good when I think about some of those people who say, yeah, I live on the street, but I'm I, I'm happy, I'm good, you know, or I don't need a lot, you know, I don't need material things. And some of the people that I know who have you know the fanciest cars and the fanciest houses are are not happy people, right? So I don't think material wealth necessarily defines how you feel about yourself or your status. Um, so, uh, it's heartwarming when you do see people who, who don't have a lot of material things who are really content. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, you know,
1: so, so I had a heart attack this past Thursday.
2: <laughs> I know, and I'm not happy about that. I know,
1: no, neither am I. Yeah. February 6th. And, the kicker is, is it's my third heart attack and i'm 59 years old right yeah. and i had an angioplast angioplasty and uh, they basically put in four stents yeah uh, two brand new ones and two to i guess fix up two of the old ones and there i am lying on the table in the or have you sat through an angioplasty
2: Yes, not recently, but I but seen you it. have. Yes.
1: And this team, which were magnificent, by the way, at Sunnybrook yeah. Hospital, were joking, we're obviously serious, we're talking, allowed me to talk, right. allowed me to ask questions. Yeah. At some point they said, we think we're going to finish up on Monday because there's a difficult artery. And I said to the doc, I go, Sam, please, let's finish up now, please. Right. <laughs> you know? Get it done. And ultimately, he did. But there I am, and I'm awake. And and Gordy, I'm thinking to myself, I'm a kid in the 1700s. I'm an adult in the 1800s. Okay. I'm a woman in the 1950s. And I get heart disease. And what happens is, more often than not, I die. Do you remember when we were growing up, our grandparents, 65 years old. You remember yeah. that? It's Yom Kippur, yeah. boom, they fall, they're dead. Yeah. Now we live in magnificent times, right? And I'm thinking to myself, and tell me if this jives with you at all. I'm wondering, like, why did God choose us to live in these times where we are so blessed with medical advancements, in particular in the area of heart and also in your industry as well, in HIV, yeah, right? Yeah. You ever think about that? Does God come in at all?
2: Well, I, I mean, we're such a drop in the bucket, right, in terms yeah. of you know the number of years that we're looking at. You know, because a lot of these technologies and what we're talking about is, has really evolved in the last 50 years, yeah. right? Even, you know, penicillin, you know, or d- insulin. I mean, these things are relatively new inventions. And uh, so there hasn't been a time in, in ever where things have changed so dramatically yes. uh, in terms of medical care and medical technology. So, yeah, I just want you to be well. Thank you. And uh, thank God you got stents put in, which hopefully will remain open. we got to make sure we keep those stents open. Keep those stents open. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's complex, right? Heart, you know, you can ask, why did I get a heart attack? There's so many different variables that go into that question, right? So, you know, family history, uh, diet. Um, you know, other risk factors for heart disease, you know, is blood pressure is out control, diabetes.
1: Yeah, Gord, you and I both know at the end of the day, we're not quite sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is like it, guys who I mean, are really in great shape yeah. drop. Oh, yeah. And that's, or women, that's one. fabulous shape. Yeah, well, and also for cancer too, right? Yes. Why is it that certain people get cancer when, you know, they're meticulous about their health? They don't have a significant family history. They look after themselves, but unfortunately, you know, people get cancer. Yes, Um, So I feel blessed in my field that I, where I work, you know, it's changed. There isn't a field in medicine that's changed as dramatically as HIV care, right? I mean, I'm dealing with, uh, I'm working with people who were supposed to have died, right? And a lot of people unfortunately did, but now they're very much alive, right? So I'm trying to tell people, like, you're good, you're not going to die. You know, maybe we should talk about going back to work or volunteering or going back to school because a lot of people in their mindset, they didn't think they would be here that's a huge
1: piece i was sitting in emergency on thursday night and um finally they got me into a room in in emergency and they took a look at my enzymes what is it
2: called the trough trough,
1: troponin troponin levels went from 100 to 150 and then they spiked to
2: 500 wow okay that's a spike right yeah, that means you, That's were, you were having damage at that time. At that time. Yeah. You were having a heart attack. Yeah. Thank and God you got there when you did. Because w- if you just stayed at home and said, ah, whatever, I have a little... I could have died, right? Yeah, yeah. And who would you be doing this interview with? Well... You'd be Don't on the joke. other side. Don't of the team. laugh. It's it's serious stuff, <laughs> I and I laugh, think man. That, yeah, I know. No, I that have you to have laugh. to laugh, and laughter is important. I know? have to laugh. I was but, laughing
1: in the hospital, and believe me, when I forgot the news, I got I became so sad. Gord, yeah, I became so sad. Yeah, I asked for a social worker. Well, wow. because and I said to her, I said, "This is my third heart attack. This wasn't supposed to happen." Right, like I'm working out. I swim all the time, and I'm eating better than I've ever eaten. This was not supposed to happen. And she was good. She listened very closely. She didn't really give me too much information, and I understood why. But she essentially said, "Be really careful not to put too much of this on yourself here.
2: Tweak yeah, it where I you think can." That, I think that's really important, right? Right, because you could beat yourself up and say, "Wait a minute, I've been eating so healthy. I've been swimming. You know, why is this happening?" Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, these things happen for you know. Sometimes we just can't even explain why they why it happens. Yeah. You know? So you yeah. must
1: walk away sometimes from. Do you still lose HIV patients? Because of HIV? Yeah,
2: I mean, there are, unfortunately, you know, for a variety of reasons, people who don't take medication. They don't take it. They can't adhere to the medication or they don't want to take it or they're living on the street or they're, you know, dealing with some pretty serious addiction and mental health issues. But that's a minority of cases. You know, I I think that probably 90% of the patients in our practice. Um, take the medication and their viral load, the amount of virus in their blood is, is undetectable. Mm-hmm. So that allows their immune system to recover and they're, they're doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I haven't seen a case recently of someone who died of an AIDS related case mm-hmm. cause mm-hmm. That but got uh, yeah but you know unfortunately people are dying of other causes you know related to their HIV so you know cancers it's called um, comorbidity is that what it's co- called? yeah we call it comorbidity. comorbidity so other conditions that go along with HIV or or along with aging you know, and, and we're trying to explain, figure out what's causing what, right? And again, it's complicated. So, yes, yes. So some of these complications are probably related to HIV itself, the virus. Some of it is because people are just getting older, right? And they maybe would have gotten these conditions anyhow. And some people, it's because of, you know, traditional risk factors. They smoke a lot or they drink alcohol a lot or use substances, Um you know, live in poverty. These are all risk factors for, for chronic disease.
1: I, I just want to go back to a question I asked a few minutes ago, which you successfully dodged. <laughs> you go to Temple. Yeah. Right? Holy Blossom. You go to Holy Blossom, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Great Temple. It is. Yeah. Great great spiritual leaders. Yes. Fascinating Wonderful. place. They refurbished it in the last few years. It's gorgeous, right? It's a beautiful space. Yeah. But I
2: was going there even when it wasn't a beautiful
1: you've space. You've been involved in, for a long time. And I think you've been doing some volunteer work out of there as well, right?
2: Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I was the chair, co-chair of the social action committee. So that's we, right, you know, and, and Holy Blossom. The reason I'm most attracted to it is is its sort of heritage and in doing great social action work, and um, and that's always been sort of the mainstay, one of the pillars of of of, of Holy Blossom. Um, and then I was on the board of directors, which you know it's, it's it's stressful yes to say <laughs> being, the least being on the board of a of a religious institution <laughs> i do a whole, i actually do a whole show on that yeah one. everybody oh, talks yeah. about that yeah
1: i think you'd rather be an hiv doc than to be you know a right. chairman of the board of a synagogue right well yeah.
2: you know what i i think they do great work and uh, because of that i think there's a lot of politics and you yeah. know a lot of people have strong opinions Correct. and that's but they're yeah. passionate so that sometimes I think that's where it stems from, right? People just all wanting to do good things.
1: By the by, the way, I have my uh, my books out on the table. I've been studying Talmud and Chumash, which is five books of Moses. The bottom red book right there is an interpretation on uh, the Chumash, again, which is the Pentateuch, and it's by the late Rabbi, uh, rabbi Dr. Gunther Plout. Yeah, the right? Plout
2: Commentary.
1: Yes, the Plout Commentary.
2: He, he's the guy. Yeah. I mean, he was the rabbi and Rabbi Emeritus for so many years. Huge, And you Huge. go, I was, uh, I forget where, I was in, um, I, anyways, I've been to different places, you know, to for bar mitzvahs and simchas, and, and, and you pick up, and, and there it is, the, the, the Plout Commentary. He's an so. amazing
1: human being. I once picked him yeah. up. To take him out on our homeless van he went out for the evening and i was deeply honored to be picking up rabbi plaut he's a huge rabbi a huge yeah. man and i'm looking in the rearview mirror and i said to him rabbi i just want you to know i said i'm really honored to be picking you up and taking you out on our event he looks at me goes you know avram cut the shit."
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i think that's the type of guy he was i attended his birthday party i think it was his 95th yeah. or yeah. 90 90th birthday party uh, totally boss him, and I went up to him. I, you know, I didn't really know him, but he was very kind to me, and to, you know, was very appreciative that I had come up to, to chat with.
1: And him. his DNA was fabulous. His mother got her BA, her BA at 100 years old. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, that. yeah, wonderful oh, stories wow. in that family. Wow, wonderful. So the question you successfully dodged before. <laughs> so you're in Temple. You're saying the blessings, one of which is Rofe Chole that God should help the sick amongst us, right? right do you believe do you believe that there is an energy within that that as you reach out through prayer to god about the sick let's say those whom you tend to those whom you know those whom you're saying a prayer on behalf of who are fellow congregants at the temple do you believe there's a true energy there that 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 prayer
2: do you believe that has an effect that's a great question. I, I don't know if I have the answer to that. I yeah. think that there's something to it. I do. Yeah. Um, I can't quantify it, of course, but I do think, you know, it, it, it accomplishes a few things, right? One is that it, it gives the, the, the person who's grieving or, you know, the, 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 the sickness of, of, of their loved ones, it gives them solace, right? Yes. It, it, it uh, promotes community. Which I think is really important. So I think even just the energy of the community saying, you know, can we, can we all, you know, you know, you you say the name of of, of uh, someone who's ill in temple or in shul, and I think that just simply by doing that, that gives a sense of community. Yes. Um, and so I think that there's something to it. I do.
1: Do you talk? Do you talk to God?
2: I have. Yeah. Do I
1: you have. ask God for stuff. For, like, not usually stuff.
2: I don't mean new skis. Yeah. Or <laughs> well, I know you're a cyclist. I, love I don't need a new like Schwinn. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, I I I think it's more conceptual. Yeah. For me, like uh, in terms of concepts and and uh, um, I don't ask for sort of specifics, but it's more of like a gestalt, uh, more of a conceptual thing of, you know, good health and uh, being content. Yes. You know, I think that's probably our biggest problem in, in life right now is, is people who have, you know, you were saying earlier, we have so much, we have, we're so blessed. But I think a lot of people don't even realize it. They don't take the time to stop and really Great. appreciate So that's something I'm trying to work through um, in terms of gratitude, which I think is uh, a North American phenomenon that a lot of people we, we just we're go 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 that we don't even stop to understand what we have
1: and you know shaquille o'neal um in his eulogy of sorts for kobe bryant i mean this this seven-foot giant was crying yeah a lot and that's exactly what he said yeah he said i'm gonna slow down i'm gonna slow down i'm yeah. gonna phone those people whom i love because we take so much for granted. But and why
2: that, does it need, why do we have to wait, you know, for something horrible to happen yeah. or, you know, a loss of a loved one or, you know, an accident for us to kind of stop and say, you know, I'm going to hug my family. You know what I mean? Like I it's, do. I do. It's, so I think we need to do a better job. and I, I need to do a better job of that.
1: I tell you, there's, there's a theory that I've been thinking about. There's uh, Rabbi Foreman who has this wonderful website on the uh, portion of the week in Torah. It's called Aleph Beta. If you follow any of these, take a look at this because it's brilliant and it's accessible for those who are well uh, steeped in Torah and for those who are really uh, new at it. And he talks about why Abraham, why Moses in this portion has to really start to develop courts, has to develop judges. And it's an interesting theory, and mm-hmm. I won't go into the minutia of it, but basically his theory is is because standing alone, when Moses was... Uh, isolated, when he was the only one who was responsible for the Jewish people, what can come out of that is this tremendous sense of power unchecked power right and when you have this unchecked power you essentially believe metaphorically that you are god that you can mm. accomplish anything and therefore you don't take those step backs and look or step back and look around and see the details see what's going on in your world around you and what you really truly need to respond to so basically rabbi foreman said is that yitro was telling him hey listen man you're not in this on your own right you need colleagues you need support you yeah. need help which, again, if you take a look at your work at St. Mike's,
2: you're surrounded by teams. You're part of teams, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, that's key to, I think, any, anybody's work. Yeah. Uh, if you want to be successful and you want to accomplish, you really have to collaborate. Um, and I'm very fortunate that I work with so many amazing people. Um, I don't think we could do the type of work we do, like, in an office on my own. I just couldn't do it.
1: You're a good team member, too, I remember.
2: Well, I think. <laughs>
1: no, I remember you're welcome. No, I remember. So, you went to Guyana with Via
2: Hofta. No, I went to Zimbabwe. You did not go to Guyana. I did not go to Guyana. Yeah, I was okay. supposed to go to Guyana, but I never ended up going. I think cuz um I think my son was born around the time that I was going to go and I just I think I think was Sharon it? said like, you know, you we went to Zimbabwe. Time. Maybe it's not a good time right now. But you now. would have gone otherwise. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. And I kind of knew about the project cuz oh, okay. I was getting ready to go and I I, I kind of knew, you know, like Mike who's, you know, an incredible colleague and mentor, you know, he, he we went to Zimbabwe together, and then he says, well, I want you to come to to, to um, Guyana. That's what it was, yes. And so I was aware of the research that was going on in Guyana and, and, and provided some input there, but I never actually got my boots on the ground uh, in Guyana. But in Zimbabwe, we did great work, and uh, Mike continued that for a number of years.
1: Yeah, you want to talk about the study, that what we did in Zimbabwe? Uh,
2: yeah, so I think, you know, in Zimbabwe, it was like another world, right, When at the point we were there. And uh, Paul Thistle, Dr. Paul Thistle, was an obstetrician-gynecologist from Toronto, Salvation Army doc, who uh, I think came to see Mike in his office and said, Listen, I'm working in Zimbabwe. Like, I don't want to get HIV. What do I do? And Mike obviously took interest and said, "What do you mean you're in Zimbabwe?" He goes, "I need help. Like, can you come down? I'm an obstetrician-gynecologist, and I'm seeing AIDS cases, and I don't know anything about it." So that's it. That
1: is the story. That's that's the story.
2: Yeah. yeah. And and I think he was in Mike's office as a patient, basically saying, "Like, is there any medicine I can get to prevent me from getting HIV?" So that's how we ended up in in uh, Zimbabwe. And, uh, you know, it was unbelievable to see what was going on, right? Because people would come walking from, you know, miles and miles away to get care. And these were very, very sick people. And if we didn't get a chance to see them because we were so busy, they would just walk back home and try again the next day. And that was at the point, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, where people were were dying uh, at a very high rate. Um, and so at that time, the main way of preventing HIV was was... Trying to diagnose HIV in w- women who are pregnant, because a lot of women would get pregnant and they would know that they had HIV and they would not only suffer themselves, but they would pass the HIV to yes. their infant. So the idea at that time was to provide medication to the woman um, to prevent transmission. To her baby, it was AZT. It was AZT, and then for a while we did a, a. There was a newer medication called nevirapine, which would be less toxic and easier to take. And so we were very early on doing these studies, um, and sort of on a shoestring budget. And um, it was really remarkable. And I think it was the brainchild, really, of Mike, who, who said, "Let's do this," you know. And he, he took risks and took chances, and uh, we were successful, in really setting the stage for future studies and future care to to prevent transmission to to from mother to child
1: yeah the amazing thing about this from my perspective is that michael was the director of our international programs as a lay person i think rachel lassery was the director as a professional within via hafta and yeah you guys went to zimbabwe again shoestring budget now, we got people over there. We got teams yeah. over there. We had fascinating stuff. Some guy took hockey sticks and they started hockey night in Zimbabwe. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Do you
1: remember that? Yeah. And essentially, we started working on this program, this regiment, which, which cost about $4 per mom versus a previous regiment, I think out of Thailand or something, at about 110 bucks, which is not affordable to any rural Zimbabwean, most Zimbabweans.
2: And I think the World Health Organization started to look at it. Yeah. It was effective, right? Yeah. So they took the regimen that we were looking at and that became, you know, one of the mainstay ways of preventing transmission from mother to child. So that was really because at that time it would have been prohibitively expensive to treat everybody. Right. Now, fortunately, all these years later, this has become the standard of care is that you treat everyone who has HIV and you make sure that they get undetectable, so they don't transmit to other people, similar to what we have here. So we're. it took a long time for that to happen. And and, and thankfully, because of programs like PEPFAR and uh, Gates Foundation, uh, you know, Bill Gates has done more for HIV than, than any government, really. He sure has. Yeah. So it's remarkable, but it took a while, right? And so thankfully now... Uh, I've done, you know, I was in South Africa last year presenting at a conference and uh, just I got into chatting with numerous people and I I was telling them about my experiences in Zimbabwe and and they were really um, intrigued and they've experienced tremendous change in terms of the number of people who have access to medication. Right. So it's, and and it's uh, accelerating dramatically so probably in the last five years. Millions and millions of people have gotten access to HIV treatment, and they're, they're living.
1: Yeah, know. I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, Via Hufta is a small operation out of Toronto. We no longer do international work, much to my chagrin, but it was extraordinarily expensive, and everybody felt we should be focusing on local, yeah. which was more affordable, more accessible, and so on. But for all intents and purposes, Dr. Michael Silverman, who was our leader, got us published. Yeah. And Via Hafta is in that publication. Yeah. So, you know, one looks at their own legacy in life and you think to yourself, man, I, like I've been part of something really important.
2: Yeah. Like I, I don't think, mean me specifically, all of no, us. No, I think this organization, if you think about it, not a large organization, but man, some very passionate people who get things done. and It was and pretty cool, wasn't it, Mike exemplifies that and you were obviously the guy who said, okay, you know, I give the blessing <laughs> to get do this it. done, <laughs> let's do it. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's tremendous things going on locally with and we know that. But I'm pretty proud of the work that was done all those years ago internationally. In, what in what was that like? What was that like to be part of Yehovah to be part of that work? Well, I thought it was amazing. Like it was just exciting, right? Yeah. Because we were sort of making the rules as we went along, right? You That's know, right. That's uh, right. I mean, obviously we were we had good interests at heart, right? Like we were we were doing good work, right? We weren't doing anything nefarious, but you know, we were going with duffel bags of, of medications, you know, right. uh, that were donated by Apotex and. and, yeah. and um you know, Barry Sherman of blessed Memory was I remember going and making our pitch in terms of what we were doing and he, did he, you go to Apatex? you pitched? Yeah,
1: did you And, yeah.
2: and I uh, I went to London, I was in London and had a I was supposed to have a meeting with GlaxoSmithKline that uh, they were they were not as kind in terms of giving product. Um, so Do Apotex, you remember that whole story by the way? Yeah,
1: what happened was we got a lot of AZT from Barry. Yeah, God bless
2: his soul. Do you remember soul. with GlaxoSmithKline? Yeah, so written.
1: Glaxo comes along and they they halted the distribution of it in South Africa yeah. because they shared the distribution center, Apotex and Glaxo. Yeah, I believe that Michael went to them and he read them the riot act, you know, because Michael's got balls. Yeah, he does. He's got balls. And
2: my balls were smaller because I went to London around that time and i went on a meeting at the glaxo office and they just right. basically said like go away little canadian doctor yeah. and mike i wish i was with mike cuz he wouldn't have settled with that and i was like okay you know so i came back and told mike what happened you know because we weren't getting our way right yeah. the, the, this big powerful pharmaceutical company was getting their way and and uh, mike fought he's a fighter you know what he told them he
1: says jesus i wonder how this would look in the new york times Yeah. right yeah and and you're right. Michael has balls like watermelons, you know. <laughs> you know? And he uh, essentially he got them to move. The only thing he asked was that Barry and that Apotex would not publicize this, of which Barry. And good for him. He said, fine, he would not. Yeah. And ultimately, we got that AZT to the Howard Hospital, yeah. which was the hospital, the rural hospital in Zimbabwe we spoke of, run by Dr. Paul Thistle, who, by the way, is still, still in Zimbabwe yeah. in a different hospital, yeah. married to a Zimbabwe woman, has three beautiful children. Yeah. If you look behind me, do you see those Zimbabwean uh, kids? I think I took those pictures. Not, not no. these. No. I may have some in my room that yeah, you yeah. took. Yeah, you're a good photographer, actually. Uh, well, I used to be. Not anymore. I got to get back into it, but I I will. Yeah, you were really good. Thank you. Anyways, my son sponsored some kids in Zimbabwe. Wow. Uh, You know how much a year of schooling costs for one child, Gord? For one child to go to school, the difference between a life and not like 50 bucks.
2: And education is the key. Fifty It's key, right? Yeah. Right? Well, that's why we have so much good work we can do. We can really accomplish. It's affordable. Not a whole lot of money, right? Was that a pivotal point in your life? Did you get into HIV because of that or were you in it already? I was in it already, but that really crystallized for me. Wow! Like what a difference you can make. Right? Yeah. One person can make, and and so yeah, I think it was more clear there, right? What what was what you could do on not much money, and with not much effort. right? It's true. Yeah, remarkable. But no, I I was at uh, I, I went to medical school at Queens. Yeah, and uh, I worked with a rheumatologist there, Doctor Peter Ford, and he was a rheumatologist, like a joint specialist. But he no one wanted to do HIV care. He goes, I'll do it. So most of the cases, because Kingston is where all the penitentiaries were, yes. um, he would go into the penitentiaries and try and find these guys and make sure they got their blood work done and got access to medication. And I tagged along with him. How was that? It was pretty cool. What, what was that like? I, it, it was really uh, intriguing, right? Because here, you know, you know, I was a Jewish kid from Montreal going into the you know, penitentiaries of major you know, people who had done major crimes, right? These are penitentiaries, federal yes. penitentiaries. Yes. But these people needed care. And uh, Peter Ford taught me, hey, I don't ask them what they do, what they did, you know, what got them in here. I just want to make sure that they get their their health looked after. And so a lot of these patients had hepatitis C and HIV, and that's where I kind of really was attracted to this field.
1: Were you scared and, when the bars clanked behind you?
2: No, I was like uh, charged up. I thought, Were you? That, yeah. I wasn't scared at all. And you know what? I I still to this day have a lot of patients who are inmates and, uh, you know, they come in their jumpsuits and with their their shackles, you know, and um, they're some of the nicest people. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. In in your office. In my office. They're polite and they're motivated to look after themselves. And I don't really get into what they did or, you know, to to get them there because I don't really want to, I don't think it's important for what I need to do.
1: Do you see the shackles when you're... Helping them? Yeah. Or, yeah. no, I, I know you see them physically, but oh. <laughs> at some point, do you just, do they, you know, after a while, you don't see someone's imperfection, if you will. You know, yeah. I, I'm assuming these guys become human to you.
2: Well, that's, the, that's what I mean. I mean, I, yeah. And, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier. I mean, this, a lot of these guys, you know, they have mothers and fathers, or maybe they don't have mothers or fathers anymore, uh, but, you know, they have people who care about them. Um, and, you know, they grew up. In, you know in the same country I grew up in so they deserve to be treated you know I mean I have a duty to treat them right I can't say I don't want to treat you because you murdered someone yes um and so I don't really think about what they did I just think about what I need to do to look after their health if C- that makes sense C- Carol and Bernie must be very proud of you <laughs>
1: your mom and dad they must be
2: well I think they're proud of uh all of all of their kids but my son the doctor that's a big deal you, you know, know, you they're, know it is, they're, so. they're 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 pretty cool they're pretty cool your parents yeah yeah, yeah. they're very uh, caring people and uh they they instilled very good values in all all of us i have two older brothers and i think we all got the bug of um social activism and looking after our fellow fellow humans and i think they did a good what job what are your two
1: other part. brothers too?
2: Uh, my brother Bobby lives in Victoria. Yes, I know that. He's uh, he's a, a free spirit, a real uh, a wonderful guy. He he's an activist, a real activist, and uh, mainly in environmental causes and indigenous causes. So he um, he's out there when you when you watch the news and you listen to the protests. He, he's the guy in the forest, and he's the guy you know. Uh, protecting indigenous lands and making sure the pipelines aren't being built and so he's he's still there you know he's 50 some odd years old and he's still at it like as he as he was you know 30 years ago i remember him ago.
1: i remember your brother yeah is he married with kids
2: uh he has a son misha yeah who's um uh, 18 lovely lovely young man yeah. uh, great kid and uh he was common law but they're no longer together but they're they're very friendly and on good terms is misha like his dad Misha's, uh, I think he's his own kid. Is he? Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. he really appreciates. They live in a beautiful, you know, part of the world, right? And so they're very into, you know, kayaking and being out in the water and uh, hiking. So I think he's really into that. But I also think he's developing his own identity, and I think he, you know, he he wants, he wants what a lot of his peers want. I think, you know, and so uh, I think he he likes both both aspects of life. And what about the, your other brother? My other brother Dan is in New York City. He's a lawyer by profession and uh, ran a hedge fund for a number of years yeah. and now he's you know he's very involved in um uh, he's sort of involved in some boards and uh, more importantly he's he's really involved in uh, middle east politics oh is he and trying to creatively find solutions to the middle east uh, peace question so yeah i mean he has uh, he's amazingly uh, passionate about finding a solution and he's traveled extensively to Israel and knows a lot of people on the ground and a lot of the politicians and he's written a lot in in major papers and how does he feel about Trump's plan I think he I mean ultimately he he created that plan uh he was the one who sort of created that framework and he he went uh, to Israel and met with Netanyahu and met brother yeah and met with uh Palestinian leadership and these things and he wasn't received all that warmly at the time but he and he you know he has some connection to jared kushner and so he's actually very involved and wow yeah and has written extensively about it and uh he gets things done he's got big balls like mike (laughs) silverman and you know very gutsy and he just gets things done um so you know he was working very successfully as a lawyer and and in a hedge fund and i think had enough of that and now he's trying to work in causes that mean something you know he wants to make a difference so he's also involved in looking at health care and and um sort of innovations in healthcare, care um in brain health and cancer care so he he just gets he just finds people presents his ideas and gets things done so do the, do you three boys get together uh, not as often as we should, or as I'd like to. But my mom turned eighty last yeah. year, so we, we surprised her in Montreal. Did you, uh, you guys all yeah, flew there? We just flew there for literally for the day. We each had a meal together. And, How was uh, it? It was great. Was it nice? Yeah, it was rushed. But you know, it's uh, it's unfortunate because we, we, we live in totally different you know areas that we don't spend a ton of time together. But uh, my parents are in Florida in the winter, so we've gone down to Florida and spent time together. My brother Dan and, and our family and his family. And Bobby's more out in the BC. You know, he loves BC and uh, he's he doesn't like to fly. Will you guys go out and see Bobby? Uh, yeah, we've done that. So for Bobby's birthday a few years back, we went and surprised him. Yeah. Uh, so that was cool. We did, we did an amazing hike. That was a great day. Did you? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm assuming when you guys were three young lads, you <laughs> did what three brothers did—you beat the crap out of each other, right? Well, I was
2: the youngest, right? So I was. Did the, they beat the crap? Yeah, out they of you? Would beat the crap, out right? Of yeah. So
1: when you get together, is there some of that where you kind of revert back to your boyhood together? You know, the three. I of think we have a good sense of humor. We have lots. You of jokes laugh a lot. A little
2: inside jokes and yeah, yeah, you know, noogies and uh, <laughs> yeah, right. noogies. power flicks. I used to get a lot of those headlocks. You know, so they yeah. they, they still. We still do a little bit of that when we see each you other. Know, you
1: know what I find interesting, Gord, is that um, when you're at your office, when you're at St. Mike's Hospital, and you're doing your doctor work, you're uh, an auspicious person to so many, because people rely on you heavily, That's, you know, Dr. Arbus, I know some people call you Dr. Gord, <laughs> I think a lot of the homeless call you Dr. Gord, I hear that on the street, right?
2: Uh, am I, am some I people that? do, some yeah. do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you're an important guy, right? So you're seen as such. And then it's funny. And then you get together your two brothers and they're flicking their fingers. It's like the disparity of oh, life, no. right? No. How you are here. And then no, I'm more are.
2: like the non, not serious, not auspicious guy. That's, yeah. that's more me, but yeah.
1: Well, what, what's really cool. I mean, in that light, I, I was reading about the awards that you, you've received. You received the Dr. Vincent James Hughes physician humanitarian award. Um, which, which is an award for someone who demonstrates outstanding compassion, respect for human dignity, and caring of patients of all ages, right?
2: Yeah, that was an award uh, from St. Mike's, and, and Dr. Hughes was a colleague of ours who uh, he was an anesthesiologist who traveled the world providing incredible care. And so I felt very honored to get that award in, in his name. You see, what yeah.
1: strikes me about that award is, again, that it's given to someone who demonstrates outstanding compassion. And you are, and you always have been a very compassionate human being, right? So I'm thinking about when the committee sits down and they go, okay, we got three nominations in front of us, I'm assuming your name jumps out because you're a very caring and loving human being, and you always have been.
2: Thank you. I I work amongst many, many compassionate human beings. There's a lot of great docs. There's a lot of great docs, a lot of great people I get to work with, so I I just got lucky, and I, I feel very pleased to have been chosen for that.
1: I want to ask you a question about your uh, your fatherhood. You you have you have three uh, beautiful children, Thank uh, you. sort of all march to the beat of their own drum, right? Yeah, and uh, one of them, your daughter, is co- becoming. More of a formalized singer. You said she has a beautiful voice. Yeah, she really does. How, how, that must be nice for you eh, to hear her I sing. love her
2: singing. and you know, The only time I, she'll sing, to me, sing for me is when she's in the shower and she doesn't know that I'm listening outside the door. Yeah. Because yeah. she's shy about it. But recently I think she's developed bit more confidence about around that, and, and she had a little gig at uh, Free Times Cafe. Oh, and, did she? Yeah, and she just belted it out. She just got right up there and belted it out, and, and we, you know, we, we brought some friends with us. and You and Sharon, and your wife were there? Yeah, we were there, and some friends joined, and, and everyone's, everyone's jaws just dropped when she started singing. Oh, did was, they? Yeah, and I was like, holy smokes. Yeah, so yeah. I'm just happy she's excited about something and that she's really uh, enjoying it.
1: You know that moment mm-hmm. where your child does better than you do or your child does something just outstanding and you can see that this is kind of carry them this will carry them forward in life you know, you know that yeah. we call it in yiddish we call it nachas. Yeah, yeah it's just a beautiful moment isn't it <laughs> yeah it really is yeah did yeah. you have
2: tears in your eyes i was really like emotional yeah 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 i was just so proud of her because she you know she just got right up there right and there was you know probably 60 people in the room and uh she just didn't bat an eyelash she just got right up there and just sang. do you know what she's saying She's really into Amy Winehouse. Okay. and uh, she, she can sing Amy
1: Winehouse Yeah, stuff?
2: and Adele. Like, these are not easy songs. No, like, they're not. So that's the thing is she's been uh, singing or choosing to sing songs that are really tough. Yeah, yeah. And now she's doing some Etta James. Oh, uh, you're kidding. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I'm like, wow, these are challenging songs. Can you sing? I could sing. I've been in some shows. Can I hear you sing? <laughs> what do you want to want? What's the song you sang in a show. Just a couple of lines. Well, you know, I'd love I'd, to hear uh, you sing. My kids, uh, they all went to Leo Beck and for a few Which years. Which is a private Jewish school. Private Jewish school in Toronto and a uh, great school. It was awesome for the kids. And, and in order to raise money for the school, they would do like a Broadway show. And you could try out. And I made the show a few years in a row. And uh, it was a lot of fun. What did you sing? Oh, God. Like, I think we sang like songs from like Miserable and Hairspray. Do you remember anything? Can you sing something for me? Uh, <laughs> look down. You know the song, Look Down, Look Down, Don't Look them In The Eye. Like Don't na, Look na, them na, In The da, Eye. Yeah. So, That's you know, great. like it was all pretty, you know, tame stuff, some comedy. It was fun. You're very adventuresome, right? Like, you don't sit still. I don't like to sit still. You don't, right? No, no. I never have, but no. I'm getting better. Oh, you mean it's more important? I think you know Sharon's taught me like can we just sit and relax for a little bit and talk and, feel and, the yeah, and so I've gotten a lot better with being able to sit but I'm, I'm a little bit restless. I've always been that way That's and I, cool. I never I don't like to actually sit. So I, I I stand, you know, when I'm in a meeting and yeah. someone offers me the chair because you know I said no, I'm good, I'm going to stand. I just I don't like to sit for too long, yeah, right? Because right. I tend to fall asleep too if I sit. Too you long. nod <laughs> off, do you? Yeah. And then so. you
1: said you have a son, uh, another son, and and uh, and you said that he's just he's a very cool kid, <laughs> Adam. Yeah, things happen for him. Yeah, right? Adam's
2: great. He's great. He's he's waiting to hear about universities for next year. But he's one of these kids who's just you know loves life and really it has a lot of friendships and uh, very popular yeah, yeah yeah everyone wants to kind of be around him. Where do you and,
1: see him going in terms of his education and
2: career He's looking at engineering I think okay okay and so uh, but he's one of these guys I think you know he's wanting maybe to be an orthodontist he's talked about he spent a little time in an orthodontist office so I told him whatever you want to do. Would you want any of your kids to be a doc i I honestly don't care. I I think I want them to do whatever they want to do. And if it happens to be medicine, I'd be thrilled. But um, so far, I think, you know, our daughter, Liv, is maybe the most likely to go into medicine. She seems to be really interested and sort of seems very passionate about science and about helping people. And she's 16, so we'll see where that goes. Yeah, I
1: mean, I I guess the core of my question is, as a father of a 13-year-old, I see now that there's something about us existentially where there's a bit of we want our kids to be us, right? There's a bit of that. Yeah. Right? Like you have a certain spiritual bend. One of your kids is religious in terms of orthodoxy. You're more reform. That can cause a rift. You want your kids to be in some ways you. I don't know it's dramatic what i'm saying but yeah i think probably ways, no. in a
2: subtle way you, you i think you want them i mean ultimately it sounds cliche but you want them to be happy and content and of course, satisfied of and accomplishing and you know um and uh, but i think yeah I, ultimately you want them to have a similar outlook on life that you have right yeah right because we believe that our outlook is correct <laughs> most days most days <laughs> yeah, right yeah
1: this is how i was brought up i've worked on myself i've developed my yeah. developmental value system and therefore, I would like you to have this value
2: system. Right, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily impose that on them, but you know, in a subtle way, I'm hoping that that kind of permeates. That's right. That's to, right. To them. Yeah.
1: So then you 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 have your son uh, Josh. Yeah. Right. And Josh is a beautiful person.
2: Thank you. Uh, yes, he
1: he's is. a lovely human being. Um, I think I was at his bar mitzvah. Yeah. Yeah. I was at we, his bar mitzvah. We uh,
2: we had Spencer West at his bar mitzvah. Right. Right. Um, who um, is a motivational speaker, and and we uh, we packed uh, knapsacks for for Haiti, and then we went to Haiti for via Hafta? through via Hafta because he said I don't need presents, you know, and so you know a lot of kids today thankfully say I don't need you know more presents, you know, more money, so a lot of these kids will make donations or or just say don't give me presents but give towards my cause. So Josh's cause was to. Um, bring school supplies and other materials to Haiti. And that's we, crazy when And isn't we it? went. Yeah, yeah it, was,
1: cr- it was awesome. Crazy though in Haiti, right?
2: It was crazy. It was, that oh, was my. tough. I was maybe even tougher than, than Zimbabwe in terms of the poverty that we saw. It was the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. And then we went to, it wasn't that long after the earthquake. That that's happened right. In 2010. And so, you know, it was a very, the infrastructure had not been even remotely uh, built back. Uh, when we were there and we, we we stayed at the orphanage there, House of Hope orphanage and spent right. some time with the kids there. And we, we still have connections with some of these kids. Oh, do you really? Yeah, and yeah, we uh, worked with the
1: House of Orphanage uh, the house of uh, House of Hope. yeah. and um, it stayed standing during the earthquake because of the donations that came from the West. Yeah in other words, it was a building that that's foundation was built well enough that it it, it could uh, withstand yeah the tremors but i just remember uh, our work in haiti and thinking you talk about the rebuilding of the
2: infrastructure there wasn't much of an infrastructure to start with yeah it's a very sad place it's certainly. sad although we saw a lot of hope there right you know, we just we like again it's like right. in zimbabwe you see some of the poorest people with some of the brightest smiles yes. and singing and dancing and so it, it that's what made me think like you know we live in this you know in canada which is one of the wealthiest countries in the world and you see a lot of people who aren't content aren't satisfied right yet you go down to these countries and and it was amazing to see people singing and dancing and so appreciative for what you were doing
1: i have a lot of friends who are into guitar and you ask them what sort of guitars they have everybody's got a telly you know everybody's got a gibson sg <laughs> are you into guitars at all
2: i like guitar do you yeah. have a guitar we do what, what do you have we have a Yamaha. Okay, I have a Yamaha. Yeah, a brand new one. Is it a nice Beth's one? That's got it because she's getting into guitar. So beautiful sound. Yeah. Martins,
1: you know. Yeah. There's a picture in my bedroom, which was taken by one of our volunteers. I don't think you took it. <laughs> and it's of a guy who's shepherding two oxen. Wow. In other words, he's holding the rope, and you can see the two oxen, and he's playing a guitar. And you know what his guitar is made out of, Gord? It's a jerry can. Wow. And there is a piece of wood. Mm. I'm assuming he cut it from a tree for the neck of the guitar. Wow. And I remember seeing that picture and asking one of our volunteers if, when they could, when they went back, if they could see, uh, if they could find this fellow, because I wanted to send that guy a guitar. Wow. But you think to yourself exactly the point that
2: you just made. They really have nothing. He's probably happier with the guitar he has than if you sent him some fancy guitar, right? Well, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I I don't know. Maybe, but
1: the point really is that when you have next to nothing, you cherish that little bit. Yeah. Share it that a little bit i remember there was a study done of how much we own let's say you and i here in toronto versus how much people uh, uh, uh how much they own in rural zimbabwe and i think there were six items that each household owned and you know you remember kids would share shoes if they had shoes at all they would have one pan for cooking yeah. if i asked you to go through every single piece of materialism you had in your home you would say album you're nuts yeah. i don't have time for that <laughs> i'm way too much stuff yeah. look around my house i have way too much stuff right yeah. Yeah, But, but in somehow there's an inner joy that comes from the lack of that materialism. Mm-hmm. Not that we should romanticize it, because they have rough lives. Yes. Right? But there's something to, to, to but see. But that's,
2: that. I think this generation's changing. You do, do you? Well, from the reading I've done, a lot of the, I forget what they call this generation now, but they don't want to have stuff. They, they're more into, you know, uh, experiences mm. And some of the weddings we've been invited to of younger people in the last few years, you know, they don't want sort of the dishes, you know, the selection of dishes that we had and they don't want to accumulate stuff. So I think this generation's also maybe for environmental reasons or just that seems to be the the desire is to have less stuff.
1: And also they're probably tapped out on all of our materialism, which doesn't necessarily bring love to the home. Right. Because you're so worried about maintaining all your stuff. Exactly. So I want to ask you about Josh. So Josh is a beautiful guy. How old is he now? He's uh, 20. Okay, good. And um, he, all of his life, has had a very, very severe stutter. Right. Right, very severe stutter. Is it? Was it since, since he was little? I think
2: probably since the age of six or seven. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly when.
1: Did it just come on?
2: Yeah, it seemed to come on, you know, probably over a short time period. Yeah. And... Um, He's dealt with it beautifully. How how has he dealt with it? I think he, you know, he ultimately doesn't let it affect who he is and what he does. Um, So he is the first person to put up his hand in a classroom situation or in a public situation to, you know, volunteer an answer to a question. Uh, He's given speeches. Yeah. He, you know, was the valedictorian in his school. Was Um, he? He introduced Justin Trudeau at, at his school, and did the introduction. Um, and so, you know, if you didn't know him, you'd say, "Oh, wow, that's a severe stutter." It's never let him get in the way of, of what he wants to accomplish. And uh, he'll it st- it would be on the real severe side, right? I think it's. I, I mean, I don't know how you would grade it, but it's 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 a moderate to severe. Because
1: I remember stutter. him. I remember him at his bar mitzvah. Yeah. And I also remember him afterwards, I was doing a class at Beth David Synagogue, and he was part of the class. And um, I, as an adult, would throw out questions to the group. And I have to tell you the truth. I was a little bit uh, nervous, you know, about him answering the question, your son answering the question, knowing that it would take a while for him to get it out, and I'm sorry for that. I yeah.
2: oh no, that's and that's. What, I was nervous, you know. But I think that's what Josh has been successful in doing. Is he lets people know, hey, it's okay. Like, he d- he does do that. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, because I see it too, and I've been guilty of it too. Where I, you know, I try and I used to try and answer questions for him, you know, or help him along, and that's what he doesn't want, right? He doesn't want. To what do you tell your dad? Don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he's taught me that, and he's also. Being able to say you don't have to feel uncomfortable i'm, I'm good with this you know he, he would say that yeah and he's it's and he's you know constantly saying this isn't this doesn't define me and it's not going to get in the way of what i want to do that's giant it's yeah it's huge. huge it's he's taught me a whole lot that's he for has. sure oh yeah he has yeah he really has I,
1: I remember in light of what i was saying a moment ago about that group i myself was a little uh scared about you know Pitching a question his way But I must tell you something The kids in the group Were respectful of him Were caring of him And were inordinately patient Yeah Much more so than I was And I was thinking Ah the beauty of those young souls
2: Oh yeah, and I right. Th- but I think what you experience is what he experiences. Is that generally the older generations? Yeah, yeah. Um, Even you know my my parents, y- you know, or in laws, you know, they have good intentions and good hearts, of course. But I think that they're more uncomfortable with it, right? And whereas you know, younger kids working with him or his peer group or friend group, totally supportive, right? And they more much more patient. Yeah, um, isn't that and, interesting? And I think Josh has found that that the generally the older people who are, you know, they want to fix it too, right? So, you know, a lot of people say, you know, what are you doing for their stutter? or what What's happening? You know, and it's like, hey, this is what it is, right? And yeah. Josh isn't bothered by it. And uh, so he doesn't want to be fixed. You know, he feels like he's doing very well. And he is doing very well. I mean, he's in a very high-end uh, engineering program at McMaster. What kind of engineering? Uh, mechanical engineering. Yeah and you know he goes for job interviews and gets the job that he wants he and, does yeah and he has to make presentations in front of people in a work roided situation and he, he does it right yeah. and then he doesn't let to get in the way and i don't thankfully i think the majority of people support him and are patient and i'm sure you know unfortunately he's also faced you know sometimes where people aren't as caring and patient and maybe provoke laughter or teasing i i'm He's definitely experienced that. But I think for the most part, he, he just, you know, perseveres.
1: Have you ever had to read anybody the riot act because of your son? Who were poking fun or being inappropriate? I, because as a dad, that must be I can't
2: remember the last time I felt that way. So I feel very, you know, thankful that I haven't really seen a significant uh, situation where he was being taunted or, or you know, teased because of it.
1: And your wife Sharon, she's a very special woman I'm assuming she that she was great with all of this right
2: yeah I mean she she exudes patience she and does tolerance right? yes yeah. yeah yeah she's very very patient very special and she's an author she is an author and I love that yeah she's a very good author.
1: What's her book called?
2: Uh, me and my so-called friends mm-hmm. so that was her first uh, novel young adult uh, novel and um, together with a the teacher they've developed a workbook. With which uh, they take the themes of the book and they've created this workbook to work with classes. So um, the class will work with th- the kids, read the book, and then they discuss the issues of the book through the workbook. Um, and so, and, and Sharon's been going to facilitate that, and teachers and classes are facilitating that. She's been uh, doing some readings in various schools in the GTA and other areas. Yeah, that is very cool.
1: Yeah. I think yeah. she told me that. She'll go to her local coffee shop, and one day she'll bang out a page, or she'll bang out 10 pages, or she'll bang out 30 words. Yeah. Because I, myself, am a writer, but I cannot write the book. I'm trying really hard. A lot of it, I think, is because of learning disabilities that I have. Right. But I was deeply inspired by your wife. Yeah. I am deeply inspired.
2: Well, she'd like to hear that. Oh, I am.
1: (laughs) am. You must be. Yeah,
2: I am, because you know what? She's very uh, unassuming and she just gets things done, and her writing is excellent. And now she's doing a lot of other writing, like blogging and writing for other people. Um, and now she's working on another project, which I don't know if I'm going to have to discuss. Oh come on, man! No, she's working on another project yeah. um, around the themes of, of sort of uh, young women and health, um, health and exercise, and sort of um, sort of health promotion in that in that age group.
1: You're not surrounded by a lot of dope smokers who sit on the couch all day long, are you? <laughs> uh,
2: not that I know of, no. but that'd be okay too. Sometimes that inspires others. That's so. true. Yeah. Yeah, no no it judging, no inspires judging. inspires me. <laughs> yeah.
1: I do want to tell um, our listeners that I've launched a brand new podcast uh, through the Canadian Jewish News Podcast Network. Good for you. Yeah, it's called nice. Kol Averham, which is the voice of Averham, which is me. And my very first podcast, which is available, again, at the CJN Podcast Network, take a look at cjnews.com, is uh, with a fellow by the name of Abu Dandachi. Do you know Abu Dandachi? No. Abu Dandachi is a Syrian refugee. And while he was in Syria, his neighborhood was being bombed, was being attacked Mm -hmm. by the military. And he decided that he would phone the BBC and say, listen, nobody's reporting on this. People are dying. Why the hell aren't you talking about it? Long and short of it is they picked him up almost as a reporter. And he was essentially Mm -hmm. reporting against the regime. The extension of that is one day he was sitting in a hotel in the south of Syria after he had made it out of his uh, neighborhood. And he had read that the Israelis had brought in, I think, 7,000 civilians and military personnel to help them medically. Mm -hmm. And um, he he was kind of shaken by that you know he had grown up hating us he had you know he had grown up thinking that the state of israel was a pariah state and was evil Uh, that's what they learned in syria and he thought to himself in the middle east you do not help your enemies these are his words Hmm. and there were the israelis bringing in syrians to not only do tertiary care, but some people he said had their faces blown off from mines and bombs. And he said they would repair them hundreds mm. of thousands of dollars in medical care. And right then and there, he says his whole value system changed. just changed. Yeah. His whole perception of the Jewish people mm. in Israel changed. And he started to speak publicly about his love of Israel and the Jewish people. Wow. And it's beautiful. And he lives here in Toronto wow. now, Gord. To and know. he was brought in here, he was brought to Toronto by the Jewish Immigration Aid Service. Wow. Um, and he is a very, very appreciative man and a very good friend of ours. Wow. A very
2: good friend I'd of ours. I'd love to hear that.
1: I'd love to meet him. S- it. So it's on Kol Avraham, and it's the Canadian Jewish News Podcast Network. So I have kind of two right podcasts on. going now, right? Good for you. Yeah, I can't make a nickel, but you know how it goes. (laughs) It's okay. You're doing good work. I have to figure out how to monetize this. (laughs) And I would ask people, please, to uh, take a look at that. I do want to tell you in light of what, what I'm trying to make this show into, which is, I think, a reflection of beauty and kindness and goodness and all of the positivity that we crave so much of, certainly in light of some of the negativity or much of the negativity that exists in our world, I came across a wonderful website, which I would ask you to take a look at. It's called the goodnewsnetwork.org. Are you familiar with it? Yeah. Someone told me about that. It's all good news.
2: Yeah. yeah. It's all good news. You need that. You need that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And uh, let me tell you two or three of the uh, articles that they have in there at present. Um, One is that they collected furs from people because furs are not in vogue anymore, as you know. And they distribute them in Afga- Afghanistan to individuals who were cold, who were needed them. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Yeah. So your mom has a mink stole. I bet your mom still wears fur, doesn't she? <laughs> For sure she does. Right? But let's not say your mom then, okay? Someone gives up their uh, their Siberian, you know, fur. And they take these and they take them to wow. Afghanistan where people are freezing and they're very poor, many of them, and they distribute them, which is very smart. Here's a second piece, Corps. Tell me, did you watch the Super Bowl? I did. Are, are you a football fan? I am. What do you think of the outcome? Uh, I thought there was
2: the right outcome. Kansas City.
1: Yeah. Did, were, were you surprised at the you know, turnaround?
2: I, well, it's interesting because uh, my son is a huge football fan, Adam, and he said, "Dad, the team that deserves to win is the team that's had some type of adversity." San Francisco had never had any adversity. Oh, okay. And so he goes, Kansas City deserves to win, and they will win because they've had some some you know difficulties you know, in previous seasons where they should have won or could have won and didn't. So I thought his theory was pretty good. Very good. Very yeah. good. And okay, so good. It was a good game and the uh, it's the first doctor who's ever played in the NFL who won the Super Bowl. He's a McGill doctor. Oh. He should interview this guy. Oh. Um, his name is uh, Tardif, uh, Duvernay Tardif, I think is his name. He's graduated McGill from Montreal and uh, he's a linebacker and he won the Super Bowl. What, First time a doctor ever played in the NFL. Is he a practicing doc? He graduated from McGill, and I think he's going to start his residency at some point. Is that right? Yeah. Isn't that yeah. interesting? Yeah, Were he, you docs going, yeah, yeah? Well, I just think it's cool. I thought it was cool. I coming from Montreal that. and being a McGill, I was at McGill too, so, so just, you know. The, I love uh, that. Doctor from McGill uh, winning the Super Bowl. It's pretty cool.
1: You know, I loved after Ken Dryden finished yeah. goaltending, he becomes a lawyer, lawyer he writes yeah. a book, he becomes a politician. Yeah, That's pretty he's, cool he's stuff. He's another cool guy. But yeah. another piece here in the goodnewsnetwork.org is that 30,000 pounds from the Hard Rock Stadium, where the Super Bowl took place, was gathered after the game and distributed to the homeless in the Florida area. You mean food?
2: Food. Okay. okay. Wow.
1: 30,000 pounds of food.
2: Wow. That's good news. And they
1: fed about 2,000 people.
2: I don't know if you've ever been to that stadium. I have not. It's uh, the neighborhood. It's very, very poor. Okay. So there's people literally, you know, five minutes walk from the stadium uh, who live in very poor housing who would definitely benefit from that food. You
1: know, Mm -hmm. it's interesting. First of all, what I find is interesting is because of the work that you do, you said that the neighborhood is very poor. You did not say the neighborhood is very dangerous.
2: No. I mean... A lot of people would. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's just fear-mongering, I think. But no, you. I, I have a quick interesting story. Yeah, please. Because we used to go to a lot of Miami Dolphins games at that stadium, and we would park our car um, in the driveway of these homes, and people, you would pay the homeowner money. No. And so I got into chatting with uh, one of the guys who, who who lived there and then I went back the next year and I because I, I had such a good chat the year before I parked in the same spot in the same driveway and had the same chat that's pretty cool and it was cool because I made a little connection and he was saying that he relies on these Sunday gate home games to make some money right because instead of people parking in the parking lots right at the stadium a lot of people will come and park their cars in his backyard yeah that's so cool. he had like 10 12 cars in his backyard. And he does that, you know, every Sunday home game. And that's how he makes some money. That's fabulous. Yeah. So I felt good. It's inventive too. Yeah. And he was just a cool guy. He had a very scary dog, but he was a cool guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what kind of dog was
1: it? It was a pit bull. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a dog?
2: No. Did no, no. Did you ever? Did well, you ever? Never. Why? You seem like a dog guy. Dog guy. I, I, we all wanted one, to be honest. Sharon but him. Sharon's like, nope. And Sharon's like, if, you know you got a dog I'm moving out. So. Did you
1: have a cat, a hamster? No,
2: no. I'm very allergic to cats.
1: Oh, are you? Yeah. You know I have a cat. I here. know, I know. That's I why did. my
2: eyes are all red. It's oh, like, I
1: thought you were tearing up. I thought I was doing like a Barbara Walters <laughs> yeah. interview here. Okay, that too. That too. <laughs>
2: no, no cats, no dogs. We had a fish.
1: <laughs> Goldfish? <laughs> Yeah, Everybody did. Yeah, we had a goldfish. All right, so listen, I want to wrap things up, and I want to uh, thank you a lot for doing this because I know how hard you work, Mm -hmm. and I know that the coronavirus is adding to your work. Um, You think we're going to be okay?
2: I hope we'll be okay. I think we will. Yeah. Get your flu shot. Get your flu shot. Yeah, because a lot of people don't understand that there's more people at risk of getting influenza and, and getting really sick from influenza than from coronavirus as far as much as we know right now. Did
1: you want to ask me anything about my heart attack? You mentioned before you might want to ask me something. I just, want, we cover uh, I it? just
2: want you to, to, to be well. I want you to look after yourself. Thank you. And, uh, you know, you take a lot on yourself too, right? So the world's ills, I know, fall on your shoulders sometimes, and that, that can be very stressful. So keep doing what you're doing, but but also look after yourself.
1: I'll tell you one thing about getting sick is that you realize very quickly um that you're loved who you have in your life the outpouring has really been very special and very beautiful i mean you're welcome to look in my fridge before you go (laughs) and grab some soup stir fry (laughs) i can take i can send you home with dinner for weeks and i um you know, life is challenging that way. Sometimes you're wondering, like you feel a little bit alone, you yeah. know. And then all of a sudden, this terrible thing happens, and you realize you're you're not alone. That that yeah. you are really loved, and you're really deeply uh, cared for by so many. And uh, I uh, I'm very grateful for that. I want to thank yeah. everybody really who has been so helpful and so loving. My family, my friends, my colleagues. It, it's it's a right
2: across right across. Well, the board. you are well, you, you are loved. I can tell you that no, I think thank you And thank you, you are uh, you know an important person in the community. Well, thank you for saying that too. Yeah, I, I,
1: I, um, I will tell people, please, when you're sitting on the couch and you start to feel this discomfort. in my case, it felt like a really bad indigestion yeah. right And it started to move a little bit and it started to go over to my shoulder. And the, the voice in my head said, you're okay, you're okay. Mm. Don't worry about it. this is not another heart attack. But it didn't go away. Yeah. You
2: know? That's an important message. Listen to your body. Yeah. And if you're a woman, it's even more subtle, right? So that's... Another. Oh, is it? Is that right? Yeah. So women generally don't present as classically as men in terms of chest pain and angina. So, you know, typically you hear like an elephant sitting on my chest, yes. you know, that crushing chest pain, a lot of times it radiates to your shoulder. And women, they often don't have those symptoms. They may just have jaw pain. Um, or shoulder just shoulder pain not even chest pain and okay. so that's why it's really important to recognize what some of the other features and some of the other uh, symptoms might, yeah might feel like
1: so so when they were doing my angioplasty they scooped out the plaque mm-hmm. they actually my doctor sent me a picture of it wow and uh i asked them real clearly straightforward i said you know had i not come in what would have been or could have been the outcome he said you could have died
2: yeah that's serious stuff
1: yeah and you know uh, as i said i'm a father of a 13 year old i'm 59 years old I, I have a lot of life in front of me and yeah. uh, to consider that as an as, as a possibility is very very daunting yeah. and it's a sadness that comes along with it so i would ask you please you know study up on what a heart attack um, might feel like i can only tell you that it's really uh, it's very discomforting and it's it's painful and and, and it hurts and um Again, it probably plays out differently in many people, but if you just have that sense something's not right here and it's in your yeah. chest or even lower, right? Yeah. Then phone phone an ambulance. Yeah, got to check that. Doctor out. told me there's a lot of people who say I'm going to be okay and yeah. they're they're not. They don't come in. Yeah.
2: Well, and I'm I'll, glad you went in. That's what the uh, doc said. Way uh, to yeah. go. and I'm glad you're you're on the mend and uh, thank you. Thank I'm glad you. people are bringing you chicken soup and I know. Uh, stir fry. Thank you, and you I think it's kind pampered.
1: I think it's cool. I mean, it's Tuesday night again. Thank you for coming. My heart attack was on Thursday, mm-hmm. and here we are doing the show. Yeah. So I hope I'm not stressing you out too much. Not at all, man. <laughs> You're pretty chilled. You you always are chilled. But I think the message in that is that we live in very good times. And, uh, and I'm extraordinarily grateful for the medical personnel who took care of me. I had really great service at Sunnybrook. They took really good care of me. Good. So thank you for that. And thank you to you, Gort, for thank all the you. great things that you've done in life. Thank you, everyone. Be well. You should be well for many, many years. You too, my, my I'm, friend. I'm happy that we're buddies, and yeah. I'm happy that we did the show together. Yeah. And I wish you well. Thank you, too. Uh, my friends, you have been listening to Hat Radio, just a Jewish guy who's trying to figure out what the hell is going on. I just changed it. You (laughs) like that? I do. Just a Jewish guy. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks, Avram. Lots of luck, and God bless.
2: You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes.
0: Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned. Keeping the flame of faith burning, I wanna know where you've been, and what you found out, spread some light in the darkness, spread it all about in the height, in the height, put it all in the height.